Welcome to the Perioperative Nutrition Podcast, sharing knowledge with clinicians to ensure all patients are ready for surgery. This six-episode series is sponsored by Abbott Nutrition, and here's your host, Dr. Paul Wishmeyer of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. So this is Paul Wishmeyer, and welcome back to the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Nutrition Podcast here at the DCRI. And it is truly an honor to have Dilip Lobo, who's a professor of gastrointestinal surgery at the University of Nottingham and, and a true long-standing expert in ERAS and, and ERAS nutrition, joining us to talk about nutrition and ERAS. And, and maybe for just a moment, Dilip, tell us a little more about yourself and what you do. I know you're just elected president of the Society of the Academic and Research Surgery Society, but maybe mention just a little more about you and, and what you do. Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Uh, as you've said, I'm professor of gastrointestinal surgery at the University of Nottingham, and I'm a pancreatic surgeon at Nottingham University Hospitals. In addition, I am the chair of the scientific committees of uh, the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Society and of the European Society for Clinical Nutrition and Metabolism. I've also been uh, recently uh, elected uh, as president-elect of the Society for Academic and Research Surgery of the UK and Ireland. Really, really an honor to have you have you join us today. And and Dilip, what one of the things we, we really want to focus on is you have a a, a vast experience and, and a long experience in helping others see the role of nutrition and understanding the data around nutrition in. ERAS and enhanced recovery after surgery. And it's one of the biggest questions that and how to manage fluids from especially our U.S. colleagues and our U.S. centers who are trying to introduce ERAS. So it's a topic of great interest and concern here, as I'm sure it's, it's been other places. So as we think through how nutrition interacts in the ERAS protocols, tell us a bit about how you work with preoperative nutrition screening, preoperative nutrition assessment, and how to treat those patients and, and what you think the importance of that is. Hi, Paul. I, I think preoperative nutrition screening is vitally important. Unfortunately, around the world, if you look at the data, this is not done in all patients. And even the best data suggest that it's done in only about between 50 and 75% of patients who come in for major surgery, which is a bit of a shame because I think identification of the patient at nutritional risk is of vital importance because that would give us an opportunity to intervene if necessary preoperatively. The nutrition screening tools are very simple. In the UK, we have the MUST, which is a malnutrition universal screening tool. And uh, in the Europe, what's very popular is the NRS 2002 tool. Both these tools are, do not assess nutritional status, but they identify the patient at risk for a nutritional problem. And if the patient is identified to be at risk, then a formal nutritional assessment should be performed and perhaps some form of nutritional intervention instituted before the patient comes up for major surgery. So if you have a patient, say, coming for pancreatic surgery who does screen in as at risk for malnutrition, how do you handle that patient? As you know, Paul, the complications uh, that patients who undergo pancreatic uh, surgery are at risk of are quite uh, uh, major, and therefore it's essential to minimize risk. So if I do find a patient who is malnourished, then we would institute preoperative nutritional therapy in those patients, which uh, would be in the form of either SIP feeding uh, as supplements 
or if the patient is really malnourished and cannot maintain an adequate oral intake, then we would consider uh, tube feeding, usually by the nasogastric or the nasojejunal route. Only a very small number of patients need parenteral nutrition, and those are largely the patients who've got some form of gastric outlet obstruction and cannot be fed by the oral or the enteral route easily. And we would feed them for a minimum of seven days and usually uh, up to 10 to 14 days. There is no evidence that feeding them for longer periods makes much of a difference to outcome and it may delay operative intervention. Do you think this is an area we need more evidence in? It is an area we need more evidence in because ever since Studley published his landmark paper in 1936, where he showed that patients who had greater than 20% weight loss had a tenfold greater mortality for surgery for perforated peptic ulcer than those who had a less than 20% weight loss. However, we know that uh, malnutrition does put the patient at risk, but there is very little strong evidence to suggest that nutritional therapy actually makes a difference. If you take the example of pancreatic cancer, for instance, there was a large systematic review published a few years ago, which looked at a few thousand patients who had undergone pancreatic surgery, and the conclusion was that uh, nutritional intervention did not make a difference. And you and I know that for some patients who undergo major surgery, if we do not provide them with nutritional support, we will increase the complication rates and perhaps also increase mortality. The problem with a lot of studies, both surgical and medical, in the field of nutrition is that there are a number of confounding factors. It's not so easy to blind the assessors or the patients. And a number of studies have just got small groups of patients and systematic reviews on small groups of patients don't work terribly well because you don't get a very strong endpoint. True, true. So I think it's definitely an area all of us want there to be more data in very soon. And, and what are your thoughts on immunonutrition, say in colorectal surgery where there's a lot of data? Do you, do you think the data is there to support that? Well, if, again, if you look at the data uh, from the systematic reviews and meta-analyses, there is a suggestion that immunonutrition may reduce uh, post-operative infective complications. There is no strong data to suggest that when you look at all post-operative complications, there is a reduction, but the reduction in, in, in infectious complications may also help reduce hospital stay. The problem with the studies on immunonutrition is that people have accumulated a mixed bag of patients having all types of surgery. The immunonutrition given to patients in the various trials has been preoperative, perioperative, or postoperative, and so there's a lot of noise in the studies. Uh, we did a post-operative study a while ago, and we found that it took up to five days for patients to achieve the desired dose of immunonutrition, and this may not be feasible. But the, if you look at uh, the preoperative immunonutrition studies, if patients are given immunonutrition for more than three days, preferably between five and seven days, then it certainly does reduce post-operative complications. And we presented some data at ESPEN last year uh, on this, and it was well received, and we are in the process of writing this up as a full paper at the moment. Excellent. Yeah, I saw, I saw that, that data. It's really ex exciting addition to the literature. So now moving to the immediate pre-op period, how do you use carb loading or, or, or 
do you do you use carb loading in your patients and do you give it just the morning before surgery or I know some in the UK money Python and the like advocate giving it the night before and the morning before how do you handle carb loading for your patients well Paul before we talk about carb loading I think we need to look at the concept of preoperative starvation and most anesthetic societies throughout the world recommend that patients should be starved for six hours for solid food and two hours for uh, clear fluids. Now, even nowadays, despite these guidelines, a lot of patients are starving for much longer periods of time. And it's not unusual to get patients come to theatre having been starved for 12 or sometimes even 18 or 24 hours before an operation. And that, to me, is unacceptable in the modern day and age of perioperative care. If you starve a patient, especially for liquids for prolonged periods, then that patient usually comes to the operating room in a state of dehydration, and that leads to other problems at the time of induction of anesthesia. Now, if you look at the data on carbohydrate loading, uh, there is conflicting evidence available. Most of the studies that have used carbohydrate loading have given 100 grams of carbohydrate the night before surgery and 50 grams on the morning of surgery, two hours before the induction of anesthesia. Now, again, we the study suggests we shouldn't give any ordinary carbohydrate, but it's usually a complex carbohydrate such as a maltodextrin, which helps uh, increase preoperative insulin re release and therefore decreases postoperative insulin resistance. Now, when you look at the data, uh, some studies have suggested that postoperative insulin uh, resistance is decreased. Others have suggested that this makes no difference to postoperative insulin resistance. And so it's very difficult to sift out the data because most of the studies that have used the CLAMP, which is the gold standard to measure post-operative uh, insulin resistance, uh, have included very small groups of patients. The meta-analyses suggest that uh, post-operative complications are not reduced with uh, carbohydrate loading. So again, the real advantage of carbohydrate loading is not known. However, if patients are given carbohydrate loading, they continue to drink till up to two hours before the operation, and that itself may be beneficial. A recent study from Italy has shown that if patients are given carbohydrate loading, the need to give them post-operative insulin to maintain blood sugar within the normal range is reduced, and that may be a benefit of carbohydrate loading. But at the moment, the, the evidence is not firm enough, and even the meta-analyses do not suggest a benefit to patients with regards to post-operative complications. What do you think of the length of stay data? Because I know there's some hint of reduced length of stay in that in meta-analysis data, at least from the Cochrane analysis. Yeah, the, the length of stay reduction is uh, less than a day. It's about 0.8 days, and that is statistically significant. But again, we don't know if that's a direct effect of the carbohydrate loading or the fact that patients have been put through an enhanced recovery program and there is a sort of Hawthorne effect and other parts of the treatment are better. And that is one of the problems with the evidence in enhanced recovery is that uh, there are multiple interventions involved and it's very difficult to sift out the individual contribution of a single intervention. No, it's true. It's a, it's a challenging field and continuing to need more data for individual interventions, I think, for sure. So now I think as you move past, when your patients are entering the post-operative phase, I think one of the big challenges, maybe uniquely, but maybe not uniquely, we have in the U.S. is it's we have in our surveys the longest period of time till we start feeds. It's often two to three or even four days till we start any nutrition at all. 
And we, we know, at least from the European data I've seen, that there is a, quite a benefit to nutrition being started as early as the recovery room. Uh, are you able to succeed in early nutrition delivery postoperatively? And, and what tricks do you have to accomplish that? And, and, and how do you work on a culture that isn't used to doing that? Again, Paul, most of the data available about early postoperative oral nutrition uh, is from colorectal surgery. And there are several factors yeah. that have helped enable this. And in Europe, uh, not all patients, but certainly more than 70% patients are able to maintain an adequate oral intake on the first postoperative day. Uh, so th there are several factors that help this. And the first of all, which to me is the most important, but we've got the least evidence on, is incorporation of the patient into the recovery pathway. And the patient understands what's expected of them, they're more likely to contribute. And so preoperative counseling of the patient is vital. Secondly, we have to actively prevent and treat nausea and vomiting because we know that a patient who's nauseous or who's vomiting is not able to eat. We moved away from using nasogastric tubes because, again, nasogastric tubes are very little benefit to patients. In fact, there is no real benefit of putting in a nasogastric tube in the postoperative period for patients undergoing uh, colorectal surgery. But nasogastric tubes do impede oral intake. Avoidance of fluid overload is also important because if patients are fluid overloaded, they sometimes are not able to eat or drink adequately. So if you've controlled for these factors, then a lot of patients can drink in the early post-op period. And again, a word of caution here is that you've got for the, to wait for the patient to, be, to recover from the anesthetic and to be adequately awake because the last thing you want to do is let a patient who's drowsy drink and you, you don't want to increase the risk of aspiration. However, the patient is alert and comfortable, then you can make the patient drink on a few hours after the operation. And as I said earlier, about 70% of patients who have colorectal surgery can eat adequate amounts on the first postoperative day. And even if they're not able to eat, they can tolerate SIP feeding or nutritional supplements. The important thing to remember with ERAS uh, strategies is that they don't work for all patients and there will always be the odd patient who needs to be managed with traditional care. And this is more so in patients who undergo emergency surgery. In patients who undergo pancreatic surgery, we know that about 15 to 20% of them can develop a condition that we call delayed gastric emptying. And it may be quite difficult to feed those patients orally after an operation if they do develop uh, delayed, post -op uh, delayed gastric emptying postoperatively. And so we have now moved towards putting down nasogeginal tubes across the gastroenterostomy or the, the duodenoenterostomy. Uh, and we start early feeding in these patients. Again, we try and feed them on the day after surgery with about 25 mils per hour through the tube and then gradually increase this. And if the patients do not have nausea and the aspirate from the nasogastric tube is not high, we remove it and institute oral feeding. The advantage of having a nasogeginal tube in is that if the patient does develop gastric emptying, then we don't have to worry about nu nutrient delivery and we can continue giving them adequate amounts of nutrition through the nasogeginal uh, tube. I think so, some of the key messages there I, I like to hear the best is, is that NG tubes are not useful devices in most patients. Um, as, a, as a past surgical patient, having had many operations myself, they are the most dreadful part of, of an operation, I think, for the patient in many cases. And, 
you know, we've been taught for, for many years that they aren't useful, but yet we still see them all the time. And the other thing I, I really liked was, was the use of NJ tubes, especially in the larger, the pancreatic uh, surgeries and some of the other large surgeries. I think that's something, at least on the nutrition side, we, we love to see and love to see more of because that's a huge advantage to us, getting those patients fed as well and, and returning the gut to function. So I, I think those are really excellent, excellent things that, that everyone needs to continue to hear to, to improve our patient care and improve the patient experience. If you're going to leave the audience with a few thoughts, one question I would have is, where do you think the greatest research priority should be to build our data for the role of nutrition in ERAS, if you're going to pick one or two areas? I think first, uh, whether it's in a research study or not, I think the most important thing for us to do is to influence process change where every patient coming in for major surgery should have nutritional screening done at the very least. And I think that's vitally important and we should aim to achieve this in 100% of patients. Amen. Once we uh, identify a patient who's at nutritional risk, we probably ought to do a proper nutritional assessment and then try and reduce the risk for that patient preoperatively by either giving them immune-enhancing nutrition or uh, ordinary nutrition to build them up and try and reduce complications. And I think if we are going to do studies to see the importance of immunonutrition or the importance of standard nutrition preoperatively in these patients, we probably ought to do large multicenter studies with outcomes that are important for patients. And there's no point doing small studies because they don't really answer any questions. And I think the way forward is to have multi-center, multinational studies looking at the same thing. Mm. However, these are important, uh, these are expensive to run and they require a lot of coordination. And as you know, with most good quality randomized controlled trials, they take a long time to finish. So we need to get more and more centers involved so that we can recruit the patients adequate number of patients over a relatively short duration of time and come up with answers fairly quickly because there's no point waiting for five years to get an answer from a randomized controlled trial because then other aspects of surgical care or perioptive care would have changed in five years and that answer may not be valid in five years' time. Any other last thoughts you want to leave with the audience that, that you think would be useful for them to hear and as, as they think about this, this topic? Yeah, I think... ERAS has come to stay. However, at the moment, it is complicated and people are a bit reluctant to institute all the measures uh, that are recommended in the ERAS pathway. However, we must remember that a number of measures now are more or less standard in clinical pathways, such as preoperative antibiotic prophylaxis, warming of the patient during surgery, thromboprophylaxis. We don't need to worry too much about these as long as they're part of the standard practice in hospitals. In the studies which have used regression analysis, they found that the most important parts of ERAS are to prevent them prevent prolonged preoperative starvation, to educate the patient and make the patient part of the recovery pathway, to avoid fluid overload. And I think these are the important things that we need to do. The other thing that's uh, shown to be a benefit is laparoscopic surgery because the inflammatory response provoked by laparoscopic surgery is less than that provoked by open surgery. And there is evidence that laparoscopic surgery, wherever feasible, helps. But again, we need a word of caution over there. And if laparoscopic surgery is to be 
part of ERAS pathways, it needs to be done by experienced people, and there needs to be a continuous audit to show that actually this benefits patients. All right, I think that's excellent. Well, Dilip, I, I want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and helping enlighten uh, people around the world on, on how best to think about using ERAS and the nutrition that's part of ERAS in their care. And again, it's really been a joy having you. You're welcome, Paul. And on a final note, may I add that a successful ERAS program is dependent on a team approach, and it also needs buy-in from the managers of the hospital because the initial program re requires a little bit of investment, both in terms of money and personnel. But once the program starts running, it pays for itself very quickly. And therefore, there needs to be a change in culture in the hospital and among the staff, and there needs to be collaboration and cooperation between the various healthcare professionals who look after the patient. Thank you for listening to the DCRI's Perioperative Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Abbott Nutrition. More episodes are available on SoundCloud and DCRI.org.